Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. There are these large financial institutions. <laughs> Alison Williams joins us now. Alison, I figured out today that Citigroup's revenue is $334 million a day. That often, You did that? Well, yeah, I did okay. that. You know, I did some fancy... Yeah, yeah, you know. I know. You taught me the FA function. Yep. You know. And, uh, you know, it's, it, they're ginormous. And what I saw, Alison Williams, in their view for 2022 is page 14, which is the layout of their technology to come. How does anybody in banking compete with Lori Beer and $12 billion a year in technology? Well, and I think that the big number of $77 billion for next year from J.P. Morgan is even more significant. And, and the way they're competing is they're spending. And I thought that um, you know, the J.P. Morgan call is going on now. But uh, Jamie Dimon sort of finished up last quarter by saying we're going to spend whatever it takes to compete with all these folks in our space. And I think the numbers today are showing that they are committed to doing that. Uh, I think that might be a reason why people are reacting negatively in the short term. But I think, you know, the, the not just the articulated commitment, but seeing it in the numbers like that shows you that they are going to, um, you know, focus on building their positions, defending their positions. Allison, talk to us about loan growth out there. Um, I know that's one of the key issues you and your uh, bank colleagues were focusing on this quarter. What are we seeing from some of the big banks? So far, it looks um, about in line. I think Bank America will be the, the interesting one next week because they're, they've been sort of the more bullish one. And the commercial side of things is really where we're getting the lift and I think where we're sort of the most bullish. On the card side of things, you know, payments still continue to be elevated and people are spending, so consumers are healthy. It's just that they have money in their pockets to pay off those balances. So I think that's that's great for the economy. It's great for the credit outlook for banks. Um, but less borrowing uh, yeah. means less interest income related to that borrowing. What's the sweat factor on traditional credit cards? I mean, there's like a firm and they're doing something with Amazon and you know all this stuff better than me, Allison. But like, are the, are the big banks worried about the end of charge cards or are they like, so what? I think the big banks are aware of buy now, things like buy now, pay later. And, you know, they have competing products, but I... I would argue that you know the, the distribution at point of sale um, is obviously what's given the big lift to that product. So I think it is something that they're watching. I would keep in mind that it's it's still very small in the scheme of things. Um, so growing very rapidly, but you know, so if you go to from one percent share of a market to two percent share of a market, um, you know, that's small for the person that owns the lion's share of that market. But for that fast grower, they're doubling their revenue, right? So um, I think it is something that, um, as I said, the banks are aware of. They're not completely dismissing it. And I think that goes to, um, as I said, sort of the higher spending and, and the focus. That's, that's what's different, I think. This, this time around, if we looked back to sort of the evolution of, of the internet, you know, way long ago, 
Um, yep. I think, you know, initially banks were very dismissive of that, and, and then they, they sort of saw the progress, and they saw... Um, they saw sort of things chip away at, at things that they could have done themselves, and they're they're much more um, aware and committed this time to making sure that they stay competitive. Allison, how are my friends on the trading desk doing this quarter, the equity desk, the fixed income desk, the commodities? How are they doing? Because they had such a rip-roaring 2020, 2021. They did, and I, I think they're doing fine. Um, you know, trading came in a little bit weaker than expected, but but I would I would say it's fine. Especially, you know, last uh, you know four Q twenty as you said was was exceptionally strong. But the big winners are your friends in the investment banking department, especially the M and A bankers. Nice. Fees super strong, um, coming in even better than expected. Uh, there's momentum, I think, carrying through at the moment. Of course, you know, we, we watch the environment. Um, a big spike in volatility would be the biggest risk to disrupting that. Um, obviously, any correction to asset prices might might hamper that. But but for now, things are strong, and you know, that's leading to the higher compensation costs, the the you know the war for talent, and that's also yeah. a lift to expenses. Saw that phrase on top live. We'll have Allison Williams on here soon to war talk about the talent. war for I talent. I love that war for talent. <laughs> that's awesome. It's coming Memorial Day. But it's serious. It is. You know, Alison Williams, thank yep. you so much. I don't the know best. Goodbye. We get perspective from Scott Clemens, Chief Investment Strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman. Scott, you know, it sort of felt like a year so far. Maybe it's at least a quarter here in the first 14, 15 days of the year. Have you changed your outlook since 123121? No, I don't think so, Tom. I think what we've seen in the first handful of weeks of this year, if anything, is a microcosm of how the year is likely to unfold. If anything, the surprise in 2021 was the relative lack of market volatility. We only had seven trading sessions last year in which the S&P 500 index moved by 2% or more uh, up or down in either direction. And, And usually in a given year, we have about 20 days like that. So we're cautioning our clients that given all the transitions taking place, and we could talk about that for the rest of the day, that there is likely to be more market volatility in 2022. That may be a risk. That may be disruptive and anxiety-inducing. It's also an opportunity as well for investors. How do you use it then as an opportunity, Scott? Well, really, when you get that dislocation between price and value is is what a disciplined, long-term patient investor can exploit. And and what that really is, is is not so much knowing something more than the market or knowing something more than another trader. It's having a different time frame for making that investment. So if you see a company uh, stumble in the near term, but you're confident in the long-term fundamental value direction of the business, that near-term stumble, maybe a near-term EPS miss, a product miss, whatever it may be, is more of an opportunity than it is a threat. Scott, I want to go to the story of the moment. It's the banks this morning. They're just killing it. Year-to-date, the stock performance, more than 10%. A bit softer on the morning. Some people are willing to chase this. What advice do you give them? Uh, Jonathan, to take the same kind of long-term approach, this is an environment which ought to be better and better for banks. Banks are uh, certainly undervalued relative to where they've been over a long run. Higher interest rates ought to be beneficial for banks. But as you and and Shanali just reported on Citibank, Citigroup, there are a lot of moving parts within the banks, uh, be they regulatory or be they a market environment, where the revenues are coming from, higher costs of employment, when they can get back to offices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is an environment which is going to be a great deal of volatility. 
I'd stay focused on the longer term. Well, focusing on the longer term, though, and this really goes to the heart of the moment, which is what is being priced in from an interest rate perspective, from a wage increase perspective. How do you determine that to decide whether or not to say Citigroup down three percent, having a really rough time of it over the last 12 months relative to other banks? Let's go. I think the, the, the interest rate environment is probably the most important economic backdrop over the course of this year. And it's really important. This is a subtle nuance, but it's an important one. The important thing for markets, the important thing for banks in particular, is not that interest rates are rising, but why they're rising. And, that, and that's admittedly subjective. And the push and pull in markets, even on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, might be precisely that. On one hand, if interest rates are rising because people are more confident in the economic outlook, the durability of the labor market, the sustainability of corporate earnings, et cetera, et cetera, that's a benign backdrop in which banks can do well and in which the market can do well. If, on the other hand, the market concludes that interest rates are rising because the Fed has lost a grip on inflation and they're behind the curve and they're rushing to catch up, that's a rather negative, a rather disruptive outlook. And I think there's going to be a lot of push and pull back and forth on that as the year unfolds. We even see that, to my earlier comment to Tom, as a microcosm within individual trading sessions. I'm confident that when all is said and done, this transition of economic leadership away from policy support, government support, monetary policy, back to the more traditional fundamental drivers of economic activity, household spending, to to name the most important one, that will take place, but it is not a straight line between here and there. Scott, thank you, sir. As always, Scott Clements there, the chief investment strategist at Brand Brothers Harriman. We get perspective now from Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board. This is an important conversation with the conference board's heritage of looking at the American consumer. Go beneath the headline data, Dana. What is the American consumer telling you? Well, I think the American consumer is telling us that December was a really rough month. But let's think about this. When we look at October sales, they were really strong. So lots of people probably accelerated their holiday shopping. In fact, I went and bought all my toys in October. Um, But we also had empty shelves. And let's not forget Omicron was a huge issue during December. And many people probably were uh, just not out there shopping because they were afraid of getting sick or they were getting sick, in fact. Um, And indeed, we wouldn't be surprised if consumer confidence in January uh, comes off from what we saw in December. But again, that's a big function of Omicron. Dana, the first point that you made, empty shelves. How much is this a supply chain disruption story and just a, frankly, supply story if there wasn't the inventory to sell? Well, I think it all factors in. If you can't, if there's no inventory, you can't clearly buy anything. And so we really need to watch uh, metrics uh, that tell us what's going on with inventories. And certainly when we look at other private measures, we did see some improvement in terms of of the movement of goods. But again, Omicron is a big issue. Certainly in uh, foreign uh, goods that we're importing are challenged by zero COVID policies abroad. And then also even just getting things to shelves, um, we still have this huge backlog of ships, uh, tanker ships with with things that can't be unloaded. And even once they're unloaded, um, we can't get it to the stores because truckers are in short supply. One Bloomberg viewer uh, writes in and says, have four kids. Santa had a rough time 
finding things. So talking about how Santa uh, is pursuing a I'll use that the, excuse uh, too, yeah. Lisa, oh, yeah, going, exactly. back, to, Just, going you know. back to the UK when I got over there. The same <laughs> thing luck. I said. Good Supply luck. chains are tough. I didn't shop online. I was yeah. too scared to go in store. Sorry. Well, I'm sure that that will, uh, that will read really well across uh, the family and baby Charlie. But there is an issue with if December was bad because of Omicron, we haven't even peaked in the United States yet when it comes to the virus. How bad is January going to be? Well, certainly we could see some uh, poor numbers in January. And at the conference board, we've already factored in a pretty weak first quarter, looking at 2.2% growth, uh, which is pretty similar to what we saw in the third quarter um, with uh, the Delta variant. But, you know, we're coming off of a very strong quarter in general. Fourth quarter probably looked pretty good. We're going to see a sad second <clears throat> first quarter this year. But then the second quarter should pick up as we get beyond Omicron and certainly as in-person services reopen and people can go out there and enjoy their lives. Uh, Dana, World Health Organization has Omicron starting in South Africa and to go north to Botswana. On November 14th of 2021, you guys own the high ground on this. Does the conference board see like charge card dynamics and entry dynamics into stores that really changed in December? Is there actual granular evidence of what we all felt? Well, um, we don't actually track that data, but um, I think that, you know, certainly the retail sales are reflecting what happened on the ground, again, for the reasons that, that we've all been discussing. And, you know, the good news, though, is that in December, consumers were still kind of optimistic in terms of the future. They were still thinking that they're going to go on vacation within the next six months. They're looking to buy cars, appliances, clothing, you know, all that great stuff. And certainly, um, as Lisa mentioned earlier, consumers have the capacity to spend. Many people are working. Um, People still have savings from the stimulus checks. Household balance sheets are in good shape. And so once we get past the Omicron uh, issue, which may be short-lived, uh, certainly as we saw in South Africa, came in strong and then uh, faded pretty quickly, we should probably get back to an environment where consumers feel comfortable spending. Dana, thank you, as always, to respond to that big downside surprise on retail sales. Dana Peterson of the Conference Board. Paul, you know, I was out with the plague and um you know, Mrs. Keene was really upset, and she goes, you know, that, that rash on your face? I mean, what, what is that? And I said, you know, I said, well, you know, it's a case of leptokurtosis. Uh-oh. And she said, leptokurtosis. And I said, yeah, it's a bad, bad case of leptokurtosis. And so I said, get Ash Allencar. So we're going to talk to Ash Allencar right now about leptokurtosis. Leptokurtosis, folks, it's not what's between your toenails. Leptokurtosis is when the markets are out of whack, and the distribution is different of whatever's going on, and the tails get flatter, fatter, I should say. And that's where you hear about this phrase, fat tails, mm-hmm. which is quant talk. We talked to Ash Allencar, who can translate this right now. Ash, the dispersion of what's out there, the, the, the cacophony of noise we're seeing with Omicron and everything else, has that created fatter tails with greater potential risk? Yes. Uh... Why well, I am familiar with leptokurtosis, I'm not exactly sure I know how to spell it, um, but you're exactly right. Like, you have a lot of tail risk in the system now, and that tail risk can take one of two forms. It can be left tail risk, which is that bad tail, um, or it could be a right tail risk, which is that good tail. And it really rests on the notion that everyone is focused on today of whether or not the U.S. Fed 
can strike that right balance between fighting inflation yet keeping growth intact. And if you're a betting man, um, and I am a betting man, the history is pretty bad. The track record of the Fed striking that right balance is, is really, really, really bad. They just never have able been, they've never been able to historically do, to, to really balance that cause and effect correctly. Um, so naturally, that's the worry on everyone's mind, that the days of free money are coming to an end. Um, the Fed is going to increase borrowing costs in an economy which is fragile. Um, and today you saw retail sales numbers. Um, you hear J.P. Morgan's earnings report. Um, the things aren't looking that good. Um, is it a one-time blip? Maybe, um, but it's something we have to pay attention to. And if they can strike that balance, then a right tail can unfold. Um, the, the Fed is able to contain inflation, which is killing people's yeah. purchasing power. Um, and you, you could see consumption yeah. increase. Um, you could see uh, credit continue to flow. You could right. see people take on leverage and equity markets shoot up another 20%. Just, we're just doing this for Ash because we want to dazzle him. Paul, I went to the Bloomberg and I looked at J.P. Morgan down $10, 158 yep. uh, having a difficult morning. J.P. Morgan down to two standard deviations of where it's been is down 5.7%, rounded out 6% from here, from where right. we are right now. From where it was in the top band of standard deviation, it's a correction move. We would have to go down 11% from where we were to really show the bottom of a two standard deviation trough. I, nobody cares. I'm just doing it to dazzle Ash. Well, you know, Ash is he went to MIT. He's got a PhD from UCLA. I think he knows standard deviations. You know, yeah. he's, he's okay with that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Ash, a lot yeah. of your portfolio managers and, and your analysts at Janus probably haven't really had a lot of experience in a rising interest rate environment. What are you suggesting to them as they think about the next really year good or two? Question. Great question. Um, this is a completely new regime, but it's a regime which is already priced in. So what you have to realize, markets are efficient. The markets today are pricing in about 200 or 2% increases in the overnight rate over the next two years. That's already being priced in. Um, that's exactly the same pace of the interest rate hikes that Powell and team um, underwent in 2017. So the key question is, are they going to hike faster and increase rates faster than what's already priced? Who knows? That the baseline is a pretty aggressive baseline. I personally believe it's not going to happen because we're entering a completely new post-pandemic um, economy. Um, that economy is a new economy um, characterized by remote working, characterized, the, characterized by the rise of the suburbs, um, characterized by a new endemic to add to the seasonal flu. So you have to realize the baseline is pretty aggressive. Nevertheless, if they do hike faster than that baseline, because inflation pressures really need to uh, get into check, what should you do? Um, well, naturally, as rates rise, fixed income holders are going to sell out of fixed income and look for other ways to capture yield. So think about high dividend well, yielding stocks. That's a good rotational play. Um, think about that left tail risk or those tail risks, Tom, that you articulated to. How do you hedge those tail risks? The big tail, downside tail risk to the system is an increase in real rates. 
So the sell-off we've seen in interest rates over the past couple weeks, it's all due to the real rate increasing. So hedge your real rates. Think about buying options on put options <clears throat> on tips um, to, to, to hedge that left tail risk, which is not, a, not just a left tail risk to tips. It's a left tail risk to right. all risky assets. You know, one thing that concerns me here, and Paul Sweeney's an old equity guy where he talks about yields up. Nobody cares. It's about <laughs> price. Are we in a bond bear market, or can you predict a bond bear market that 92.3% of our listeners have never been in? It's hard. I, I don't think we're in a bond bear market. Um, I, I do believe that the Fed's hiking schedule is going to be gradual. Um, it's very unlikely they're going to hike more than, uh, what is it, eight times over the next two years. So if they stay on course, that should be a non-event um, in terms of fixed income rates. But it can be actually uh, a meaningful and significant event when it comes to equities, because you likely will see a shift of your nominal interest rate being more real rate and less inflation. And more real rate is bad, because at the end of the day, your P.E. ratio, which is a real ratio, right? Prices are nominal. Earnings are nominal. Your real rate rises. This fantastic <clears throat> P.E. expansion, which tons of people have made tons of money off of, will yeah. start to compress. I mean, this is good. Um, we got to leave it there, Ash. We got to, you got to, could you make a note, Ken? Can we get Ash back on? I think we need to go out to Denver. July. I think the snow's pretty good Road out there. Road trip to Denver? Yeah, yeah listen to you. There. You're trying to yeah. get the ski trip. Yes. We get a weekend brief from Andrew Pekos. He's professor of virologist and therapist for the Keene Dining Room Table. Joins us today from Johns Hopkins and the Bloomberg School uh, there. Andy, this came up last night at the table. What's after Omicron? What is after this variant? Well, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen with the with these variants. Uh, we're we're we, we can say with pretty good certainty that there will be more variants coming down the pipeline. But we really think that, you know, Omicron was a tremendous challenge to the current vaccines and the treatment regimens. And if we can handle Omicron, which in many ways, when it right. comes to hospitalizations and the rates of hospitalizations, we are, we probably are going to be in a good place to be able to deal with other surges and be able to limit them in the future. Where did Delta go? Delta is still around a little bit. Uh, we have a few people here in the hospital that are infected with Delta. Uh, Delta is at very low levels across the country, maybe 10% of sequences. Uh, but Omicron has really come in and outpaced Delta and really become the dominant virus in an incredibly fast period of time. Andy, we're talking about economic momentum in the face of the Omicron upswing. And we've been talking about when we can expect it to be over. I'm curious about what you've observed about a five-day isolation period as the CDC guidance lays out, as well as now the United Kingdom. Is that proven to be the effective amount of time that people are contagious after which they can go back into circulation? The problem is it's a very nuanced uh, uh, question. There is some data suggesting that if you've been vaccinated, uh, that after five days um, you are 
very unlikely to be infectious. But all of that data was was generated with variants other than Omicron. And we already know from some of the testing procedures, some of the transmission of Omicron, that it's doing things a little bit differently than previous variants. So many scientists, including myself, really wanted to hear that five-day incubation period uh, ended with a negative antigen test because that would have really been strong evidence that uh, you would be uh, very unlikely to spread the virus if you went back to the workplace. Uh, Andy, so, yeah, go ahead. Other, with other variants, I would have said fine, but with Omicron, things are a little different. Andy, Tom started the conversation off saying what comes after Omicron, and we're talking about bank earnings. We're talking about the return to work uh, plans that were put on hold as we deal with this latest variant. What will return to work, return to party, return to restaurant look like once we are back to an endemic phase of this virus rather than pandemic? Well, if there's any bit of a silver lining right now, it's uh, it's it's becoming clear that if you've been vaccinated and you get an Omicron infection, your immune response afterwards is not only tremendously high, but it's also very broad, meaning that it recognizes all these previous variants that have come through. So there's suggestive data right now uh, indicating that people who have gotten through this Omicron surge may end up with a really strong immune response afterwards that's going to provide even more protection against whatever the next variant is. And if that's true, that could be a real turning point in turn of in terms of dealing with this as as a pandemic versus something seasonal like influenza. Mm. Dr. Peckos, thank you so much for joining us today with Johns Hopkins at University. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.